Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. horror films my name is Stuart Wright and today's guest is and I should I should add it in brackets here my first Dr. Sir Canillay hello doctor (laughs) (laughs) well people don't know because they can't see behind the curtain what palaver we've had to get to this point so I feel like we've already got a victory the fact that I've managed to start the podcast off fantastic now we've uh, we've come to, before we get into what we've come to talk about, which is um, five great British horror films. There's a, there's a reason I've got you on the show is that you're doing a talk at the Miskatonic Institute called Hellbound Hearts: The Dark Art of Clive Barker on Thursday the ninth at the Horse Hospital in Central London. Uh, before you get into what that's about, do you want to give a brief introduction as to who you are and, and give us your credentials for the listener before they before they hear you talk about film? Sure, no problem. So I'm Sarkini Line. I'm a senior lecturer in film studies and American studies and a founding member of the Manchester Centre for Gothic Studies at Manchester Metropolitan University. Uh, my research interests are well, Gothic and horror studies, um, American popular culture and history. And uh, recently I've just brought out, I brought out a, a special edited collection on Clive Barker back in 2017 called Clive Barker Dark Imaginer uh, with Manchester University Press. And I'm just releasing uh, next week a, a book on postmodern vampires, which is out with Palgrave Macmillan. Blimey, that's exciting! Yeah. So good time. <laughs> so segueing on from that, then, do you want that, that gives people a general background as, as to who you are? Do you want to just give us a, a bit of a plug then for what what Hellbound Hearts is going to be about? Sure. So Hellbound Hearts is a, a, a long form lecture. So it'll be a two hour plus lecture on uh, Clive Barker in all of his uh, kind of wonder and beauty. I'm looking at it from a kind of biographical point of view, his contribution to the arts in Britain and then his move to America, his look at film, his work as a director, uh, his sketch work, his art. Uh, and kind of looking at how Clive has been a little bit neglected by the Academy up until, well, up until my book, he had, there was nothing out on him for 
for basically 20 years by the Academy. So I'm very interested in uh, looking at how important his contributions have been and how um, how wide ranging and polymathic his uh, his artworks have been. So across all that range of media, I want to celebrate Clive's amazing work. So I think that's what we're going to try and do at the Miskatonic Institute. Fantastic, fantastic. I one of one of the early episodes of Five Great British Horror Films. Um, a, a, a writer friend of mine, Gareth Dimlow, he talked he talked about the Ghoul from 1976 as being a kind of oh, yeah. like the death knell of what was a kind of rich period of Hammer and Amicus and, and all that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. then saying that that there wasn't really any real British horror to note until 87's um, Hellraiser was made. And Excellent. It came out. And so it's like, it's interesting to think about, and it's interesting with your kind of summing up as saying, maybe someone who hasn't been given as much attention or as much kudos is that mm-hmm. it, it, it is more than just a footnote, isn't it? To be kind of you know responsible for reigniting what might be seen as British horror, which obviously is a, it's a great tradition in itself, isn't it, around the Gothic? I would agree, yeah. Especially, I think, because it depends, I suppose, of when you came of age with horror. And I always think that horror, like any film, really is very biographical. You know, it's always about when when you came to it, how you got your taste for, for the for the bloodlust, essentially, mm. of, of, of gore cinema, horror cinema. And I remember that one of the things that really struck me was that I never really associated British horror cinema with the contemporary moment as a kid. I always associated it with Hammer or Amicus because, you know, older titles, titles that that were made before I was born. Mm. So the fact that um, Barker made this film in the 80s, it really, to me, was like, oh, there's contemporary British horror. There's horror films we made in Britain today that are um, important and viable and not necessarily just the American material that was coming out in the late 80s and early 90s. So I think it put kind of it re-injected or reignited that kind of British horror um, origins had been kind of recuperated or reclaimed, I think. Certainly contributes to the larger image around it anyway. No, certainly. And I, and, I, and I seem to remember at the time, you know, Stephen King was not was not shy at coming forward in sort of pointing out that Clive might be one of the, you know, the new leaders of horror. Yes, yes, that's true. So I'll be, I'll be talking a lot about that in the lecture, the idea of uh, uh, King, uh, King's endorsement and what that did and, and how that had positive and negative effects. So, yeah, that's I think that would be, be interesting. Yeah. Right, okay. So. Well, for the listener, I will uh, put those a link in the show I won't notes. Spoil it. <laughs> sorry, say yes, that again, sorry. I said I won't spoiler it, just in case I won't spoiler <laughs> it. We've got the lecture and we'll have some fun with that one. No, I'm always yeah. conscious of like, tell me what it's about, and then I could end up I could end up asking questions that mean, yeah, I'm covering that on the lecture. I'm covering that on the lecture. But yeah, no. Um, I will for the listener. I will put a link in the show notes so where uh, you can get details as to where it is and time of start and buy tickets and the like. Now. Fantastic. Now, we're going to move on to your five great British horror films. But before we do, I'll just do a general introduction so for anyone who's coming to this for the first time understands what we're about to do. Um, the, um, the, aim, the aim of this sort of offshoot to the normal Britflix podcast to do, which tends to be an interview with a filmmaker or someone, someone associated with making films, you know, either that be a, somebody who works in the law or someone who works in movie supervision, um, Whereas Five Great Short Films was just was set out to be a, a bit of fun to look back on films and maybe lend a little bit of personal biography to them as much as lend your own insight into where, where you might or might not think a film sits in popular culture terms or in film history terms or just in, in horror terms. Um, and what we'll do is we will do your five and they're going to be uh, in reverse date order, so oldest to newest. Uh, we'll spend five minutes on each one. And when uh, Edgar Broughton Band sing Out Demons Out, Out, Demons Out. 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 Out, Dem
that's when five minutes will be up. So you'll know, you listen out for that. Now, um, like Magnus Magnuson, I'll, uh, we, I'll let you start so you'll finish, as it were, mm-hmm. so a sentence. But we will be moving on to the next film. Okay? Yeah, sounds great. And also for the listener, this isn't you can go you can go to Empire or BFI to go and get the definitive list of what is you know the greatest British horror films ever made and stuff. But this isn't about consensus. This is about introducing you know. You know, art isn't a competitive sport, and art is a very subjective thing. So, what's what's great to one person might be atrocious to another, and um, and that's and that's what we're more interested in. What's what's great to you, as as the, as as my guest talking about it. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. Right then, clock's ticking, and the first one we're going to start with is 1958's House of Dracula, written by Jimmy Sangster, adapted from Bram Stoker. I'm interested to know. How true or not that is. Directed by Hammer's uh, stalwart Terence Fisher, and starring Peter Cushion and Christopher Lee, as if it wouldn't be. Um, do you want to talk about maybe what it is about this film that makes it interesting for you? Sure. So uh, I saw Horror Dracula a little bit later. I was oh a teenager, I think, by the time I'd actually seen it. And what interested me, and it's something that I developed a lot on in my scholarship, was the idea that this Dracula, Christopher Lee, the big towering Hulk that he was, um, was such a different Dracula to all the other ones I had seen before. So I had seen sympathetic Draculas, you know, Draculas that were, you know, uh, introverted or talked about maybe being immortal. Certainly, I mean, formative film for me would have been Coppola's Dracula. So as you can see, those two Draculas are very different. Mm. But um, in horror Dracula, Christopher Lee so physically imposing. He's so physical. He throws the brides around. He's he's very dashing, but very very powerful and always quite menacing on screen. So I found that to be incredibly um, informative. I found that this was sort of the beginning of understanding, even as a casual viewer, that there are huge variations between each interpretation of Dracula. And this one for me is so important because it kind of gives, it certainly infuses a sort of a British prestige to the horror film without question, Mm. but it also pairs up the brilliant kind of pairing of Lee and Cushing on screen. So, uh, you know, as much as Cushing becomes the kind of stalwart Van Helsing, we also have this very, very interesting uh, dynamic performance by Christopher Lee as Dracula. Now, it's not really that, um, just to answer your question, it's not really that uh, adapted from, I mean, it's adapted from Stoker, but I mean, it's not faithful as an adaptation. But in a way, it shouldn't have to be. I always think that, you know, these stories live on because they tap into some sort of archetypal, primitive, um, you know, need to tell a story about an invader and the terrible way to that he will transform your culture and your society and you have to knock him back into the grave, so to speak. So um, in a way, this this film speaks to that time. I mean, the architecture of the castle, the fact that the, the coffin is white, I always found that to be very, very strange for Dracula. Mm. Um, I suppose because in a way you would associate white coffins more with children than you would with a, a vampire. It was just a very, very strange um, sort of uh, dynamic of, of imagery. Um, but it's really got some great tense moments in it. The, the battle between Van Helsing and Dracula at the conclusion is really, really climactic and powerful. Um, the fact that Cushing himself kind of holds the screen as this academic, but also a proactive Van Helsing. He's smart, but he's also very capable of actually uh, seeing um, the, the horrors that are going on within the society. And I always found that Cushing was able to embody a particular kind of menace himself. He always threatened to be, you know, um, mad for power himself. I never felt his Van Helsing to be b- thoroughly benign, if you know what I mean. He always mm. felt a little 
a little bit sort of threatening. So I found that between all of those different elements, Horror Dracula actually is really stands the test of time as a great Dracula film from the mid-century. So um, I, I found that it was something that was very, very particular to Hammer's prestige before it went very, very sort of, you know, um, busty in capes and blood dripping. You know, it actually still had a... <laughs> You could watch it with your you could watch it with your parents and not feel too embarrassed if you know what I mean. So what, uh, from a from a gothic point of view, what what yes. what do you think it is about the sort of I guess I guess the ongoing potential for adapting what was Bram Stoker's original idea into what mm-hmm. into these various forms that don't necessarily pay they pay tribute to, but they don't they don't follow it to the to the letter. Mm-hmm. So, well, I suppose the gothic nature is, is is the retelling of it. The fact that a story like that can be adapted for every age, okay. that every generation informs its own type of horror film. Mm. And certainly across horror cinema, you see these kind of flows again and again, where um, horror films can be identified according to their particular trend, the years in which they're made, the decades in which they're made, the politics of that period, which informs it. So in a way, the British horror film of the 1950s and 60s, and there are other people who have written far more on this than I have, but um, there, you know, there is a very, very um, strong kind of sense of national identity identity and pride in those works. Um, those works were uh, very much at the forefront of making British cinema popular and engaging with, you know, these really, really great classic Gothic stories and bringing them up to date to terrify contemporary audiences. Remember, a lot of the big Gothic stories that we think of, Shelley's Frankenstein, you know, Stevenson's Jekyll and Hyde, obviously mm. Dracula, they're 19th century texts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, they are of their time. So updating them through the medium of cinema, they do adapt to the contemporary audience that are going to consume them. They are being made for that audience. So I think that's why these Draculas and Frankensteins and, 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 and Jekyll and Hyde, they all live on that way and they're all reappropriated for those particular contemporary audiences. Hammer was very clever. They simply rewrote around those stories. So whether it's a, a Curse of Frankenstein, you know, or any of those... <laughs> Go that was our five minutes. It was. They were all they're all adapted for that contemporary moment, and that's what makes them live on, essentially. Cool. Now, now, in t- uh, your next film is 1973's The Wicker Man, which I suppose is um, rather than being a kind of, I guess, a, if 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 Hammer was trying to sort of celebrate British cinema and, and and sort of give it a sense of identity, then Wicker Man, in its own way, is 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 on the one hand a criticism of counterculture and also um, a great martyrdom pick as well. Um, but do you want to talk about what it is for you that, uh, oh, that makes Wicker I, Man I attractive? I love Wicker Man. Wicker Man's is kind of a, a wonderfully demented um, musical. <laughs> That's the way I kind of feel about it. It's uh, I, I, I sing along whenever I watch it. It's got that kind of um, compulsion to get involved, to get stuck mm. in. I would read it actually as a criticism of patriarchy and that counterculture is trying to rid itself of that stifling hold of patriarchy. When we think of Edward Woodward's, um, you know, a policeman, he is uh, this this staunch representation, sort of Presbyterian um, uh, conservatism that needs to be queried that needs to be um you know parsed up that he is the one who actually is is the jaded one he's the one who needs to get with the times and in order to do that we have to sacrifice him uh to the pagan god for the uh, harvest it's very um <laughs> i think it's i think it's a great kind of discourse on national politics where is britain going where is where is it going at the, in, in that kind of turn of the 60s into the 70s what's mm. changing in terms of the generations 
Um, and then the fact that they get to thoroughly enjoy it through um, the gorgeous spectacle that is Brit, Brit Eklund, um, you know, and the fantastic sort of music that informs the film. I think um, Robin Hardy's film is an absolute masterpiece. Um, we do teach it, and it's very interesting. When we do teach it on our undergraduate programme, a lot of our students wouldn't have come across it before. They may have come across the Nick Cage remake, um, but they find that when they watch this, that actually it's very, very empowering towards women. And that's something that they're not used to seeing in horror films either. At least they, by the time they come to these films, they are not used to it. Yeah. Um, and they see that, you know, women are empowering. Women can ensnare and entrap and be very beautiful and be completely fine with the idea of uh, burning a representative of patriarchal righteousness in a in a huge uh, sacrificial um, structure. I think they're fine with it. So it's I find it very, very uh, comforting as a film and very, as I say, musically rewarding. It's it's the reason I say that it's, it's a martyrdom film is it's something that I got from from listening to Robin Hardy talk about it. Yes. He, he, yes. When when the film toured America, uh, Wicker Man was embraced in the southern states, not mm. as a horror film, but as a kind of, you can't stop me believing in God, almost like Wicker Man is a bit like yeah. the story of Job. You know, if you yes. if you look at Edward Woodward, Sergeant Howie as the hero. Sergeant Howie, yeah. As yeah. a hero, as, a, as opposed to, because in a way, this this plays with the idea, because we're meant to, we're meant to sort of invest in him. But if, if depending mm. on how you see the world when you're watching it, yeah. you kind of go, well, actually, I'm I'm kind of on board with with the no gods and um, you know sh- singing into the wind and hoping for a better, f- you know, as just as just as silly as saying there's a there's a great guy in the sky with a beard and he gave us his only son. There's a lovely line, I think it's Christopher Lee, isn't it, where he says he throws it back at him about about the virgin birth. Yes, he does. Yes, that's right. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, it really would depend on how you come to the film, because I think the film is very clever. It opens it up to say, right, OK, if you want to side with Howie, uh, Sergeant Howie's, you know, particular um, belief that, you know, God is good and you can't stop me in my faith. My faith is unshakable. That's fine. You can totally read the film through his character's perspective. But equally, I would argue you can read it entirely through the residents of Summer Isle. They are too devoted to this idea of the harvest being saved. They are also um, very, very resolute in their belief. Now they go around getting their sacrifice through sort of, you know, um, terrible means. But at the same time, they they believe, too, that they're going to be successful. And the film ends on that uncertain note of, well, is the harvest going to be successful? Did you know, they just murdered a policeman, essentially? Um, <laughs> is this, does this mean that, you know... And no one will ever know because it's out in the middle of nowhere. Um, so it doesn't give you that resolution of which side of the argument is right. It's just saying that we're no longer afraid to depict the fact that actually we're willing to burn patriarchy at the stake. That's but, but you've got that. I mean, like I said to you before we started, it's one, one of your five that I've recent, most recently watched. And, and mm. I'd, I'd forgotten the, the exchange in that desperate moment where obviously he's arguing for his life. And mm. he points out, because he's obviously, we've seen him earlier on in the library reading about what the May Day festivals about um, yes. so he tells he tells them and therefore points the finger at uh, Lord Summer Isle and says but you're if I don't work you're next mm. and he says it will work and you're like wow in a in a really weird way he's just as dogmatic as oh yeah they're as, as dogmatic as, the, as the Christian yeah. is in a way yes yeah and that's that's the, I think the, the great turn of, her, of of Hardy's film he does not say which is right he doesn't endorse a view mm. he's just showing both of them are equally entrenched in their own belief system. And in a way, both belief systems are shown to be equally absurd. Mm. You know, there is an absurdist element all going all the way through the film. Uh, and I think that's what makes the film so kind of... Timely. 
So that again, so it makes the film. <laughs> it makes the film timeless in that sense. It makes it timeless. Yeah. I'm sorry, I keep on laughing when that comes in. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Like I said, it's meant to be fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it is definitely, definitely. I need to use that in my lectures. You know what? I need to use that, that, that little prompt. <laughs> Well, look, we're moving on to something that's at the heart of our our five, so it's the middle one, yes. but obviously it's the most relevant to um, to what you're going to be talking at Miskatonic about, because this is uh, 1987's uh, Hellraiser, written and directed by the very man Clive Barker. That's right, yeah. Oh, this is a special one. Um, so, uh, as a kid of the 80s, I used to go to video stores all the time. One mm-hmm. of my favourite places to go at the weekend, I'm sure you agree, it was great mm-hmm. times. Yes. And... I was always fascinated by the video box cover of Hellraiser. Of all the, I used to study the horror, the the, the video box covers because I wouldn't be allowed to watch those films. So, but I'd study them and kind of try and figure out what was going on in this film, what was it about? And I used to stare and stare at this the, the cover art for for Hellraiser time and again because I was just so fascinated by Pinhead. I was so fascinated by that cover. Uh, it just promised so much. Um, so um, I eventually got to watch it. Oh, I was a teenager, I think, by the time I'd actually seen it. And what really amazed me about it was that there's actually, until you actually get to the end of the film, there's actually very little gore in it. It's all the suspense. It's basically, to, to, to quote Barker, it, he's sort of Ibsen with monsters. It's all about this kind of collapse of this marriage in this um, in this London suburb, um, com- replete with this sort of, you know, domestic relationships and, you know, the, the, the mess of marriage, the mess of sexual relationships. And then you have a resurrection in the attic. So, um I think it's kind of I think it's it's one of those really really intelligent films that is made it's been made obviously with a lot of care and a lot of craft uh, and based on a really really beautiful novella but I found it to be so um intelligent you know it wasn't just about ripping bodies open I mean it gets to that ripping bodies open at the end because you it's still a horror film but actually it's all about building that suspense and that's what really kind of stayed with me and as someone who came to Barker as a reader more than necessarily as a film director um, I, I did always want to uh, think about the idea of how would he make a horror film and actually it, it does sh- his intelligence with, with, with the material shows through mm. um, I love it as a film I must say now there are issues around it sort of mid-Atlanticism they did very much fear it was too British so they did add in you know dubbing and American accents and all the rest of it but um, I found that it was uh, something that really the fact that they could put it in somewhere like uh, you know a London suburb and make it feel real this fantastical kind of encounter with the Cenobites I found that to be incredibly powerful and very very influential and also I'm obviously gave, gave birth to a very a very uh, a very modern horror icon you know we, we talked earlier about how you know how far back you know Dr Jekyll goes, Frankenstein, Dracula, and here we have yes. Pinhead. Is, yes. is, is a, it becomes a horror icon? What's, what was interesting looking back before we spoke is that on on IMDb, <laughs> Hellraiser, he's just Doug Bradley's just just listed as lead Cenobite, whereas when yes. he gets to Hellraiser two in eighty eight, he's Pinhead. Yeah. Without you know, yes. it's, it's sort of interesting just that that because obviously we don't films aren't made with the idea of a five sequel run. You know, just mm-hmm. nobody knew it was going to catch. But in essence, it is just a simple Faustian deal, isn't it? In a way. Yes, it's a Faustian bargain. It's again, it's another classic Gothic convention. Mm. And in a way, the Faustian bargain is possibly one of the the most the, the most revisited, but obviously the one of the least. I would say one of the least studied elements of the Gothic tradition. So, you know, this he's basically, Pinhead is in some ways Mephistopheles. Mm. He's saying you can have this pleasure, you can have this pain, but there is a price to it. I think you should think very deeply before you open that box. And, you know, or when you open the box, well, too late. Um, and then you have to pay the bargain. 
time. And of course, like any good Faustian bargain, the idea being is that, you know, Frank obviously wants to escape. Um, and, and there's that there in yourself, you have a, tr- a thriller, you have that dynamic of will he get away with it or not? Will there be some sacrificial lambs on the way? And then, of course, the arresting design, the design is really what kind of separates, I think, uh, Hellraiser from a lot of other other sort of, you know, direct to DVD equivalents is that um, it looks really beautiful. The costuming, the makeup, I mean, it really stands up. The voice, even the slight modification of Bradley's voice mm. when he's speaking as Pinhead is really profound. It really has a great effect. Um, we introduced it last year when it was re-released at the Film Fear uh, Festival up in Manchester. And, uh, you know, listening to that in the cinema, wow, you know, it really still has a great, great effect. So um, I, I think that it, it's a really, really strong example of, of very intelligent horror films of the 1980s. And again, reclaims that British tradition mm. of horror. Um, away from the sort of more mordant wisecracks of Freddy Krueger and, and you know, or indeed the stalk and slash of, of you know, Halloween films and series I totally love, but um, have a very different kind of dynamic behind them. You know, Hellraiser is intelligent in that sense that it really is all about, well, you made this decision, you brought it on yourself. Now you've got to pay the price. So, yeah. And, and I think that's, I mean, in, in sort of horror films generally, it's the thing that a lot of people miss in the race to kill people is that mm. sin's quite important to understand in the context of the horror film. You know, even even if it is a Faustian sin, i.e. you're just a bit green yeah. in the moment, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a logic of the consequence, whereas there just being a bad man around the corner who's going to get you. Or a bad yeah, but is, it is, makes it feel very templated, very mm. the same, very similar. Uh, you know, because then what's the difference between the different kind of slashers and serial killers? Mm. Well, other than their origin story, um, I mean, at least with Hellraiser, you kind of go, well, if you don't invite that temptation into your life, you're not going to necessarily encounter the Cenobites. You know exactly. what I mean? So exactly. there is that transgression element, which is so important. Anyway, we could talk a lot about Hellraiser. So. We could indeed, and you're going to, I imagine. <laughs> I'm going to. Yes. <laughs> Well, look, we're going to move on to 1992's Ghost Watch. Now, yeah. this this hasn't appeared on, on Five Great Bizarre's yet, so we've had similar stuff to it, but you're the first to... Uh, I'm guessing this is the Mike Smith, Sarah Green and Michael Parkinson, which always makes me laugh when I, when I, with the third name that's involved with this. So do you, want to, do you want to talk about what... First of all, for those that might not know it, because it's not, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not in the same way. It's not canonized in the same way as, a fil- as films are, but clearly it is yeah. to a certain generation. But for those that may not be so familiar with 1992 or not or, or not Britain, do you want to tell okay. us what Ghost Watch is? Yeah. Very, very briefly, Ghost Watch was a BBC drama hour, um, 90 minute feature film written by Stephen Volk, um, uh, whom I had the pleasure of talking about with this before. Um, and it was screened on Halloween night, 1992. And, uh, it was screened only once because there was absolute Usher Ferrari the uh, the day after there was tabloid um hysteria following its its uh its release on on oh, sorry it's 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 broadcast on BBC uh it's basically um a kind of um a fake or a mockumentary kind of styled um uh, investigation into a haunted house in North London and it's 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 basically all set up to be a real live feed back and forth between Parkinson in the studio mm. and various sort of um you know um, 
very sort of uh, intrepid reporters essentially out on the uh, on the beach around this house. It's very loosely kind of in, takes inspiration from things like uh, the Enfield haunting in the 80s, for instance. Mm. So you have these kind of apparitions and it's like, it's like camera trickery around ghosts and things like that appearing and marking the children and things like that. It was so powerful as a piece of TV. Now, when I saw it, I was at the exact right age to see it. I was 12. It was my birthday is just around Halloween. So I was 12. I was watching with my cousin on a, you know, a perfect Halloween night to really experience good horror films. And um, I remember thinking up until maybe the last 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes of it, I remember thinking this is absolutely 100% happening. This is real. It was really, really convincingly well done. In the third act, it does kind of, you know, go to slight hyperbole. But, um, you know, there was this kind of pleasure of and this kind of documentary tension between Parkinson, who you would recognise on television interviewing people, fronting this kind of paranormal investigation in London. It was really exciting. So um, for me, it was really important because it kind of shows that beginning of people being actually terrified when horror is not contained into the fantastical elements of Pinhead or, or zombies or whatever else, but actually the fact that someone could be having a paranormal encounter in a place that they know with a familiar face fronting it. It was very, um, very, very um, informative for me anyway, you know, and, that, and obviously became a phenomenon in its own right because BBC have since said they've never rebroadcast it. So. It's fascinating as well because, I mean, obviously you think about other other sort of um, sort of culture shocks that happen through drama, like uh, like War of mm. the Worlds on the radio and people think of the world's going to mm-hmm. end. Um, very similar, yeah. And it's interesting, very what's interesting as well is like 90, it's 1992 when this is made and yet it's, mm. it's 2007 when the phenomena, uh, paranormal activity, the film, becomes yes. a huge cultural thing. And that's an amazing length of time when I think about it. I hadn't thought about it until you, you suggested it for your list. Um, mm-hmm. That's an amazing length of time because, it, because we've, you know, you could argue that this, 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 this film, this, this sort of mockumentary, I suppose, um, give, give birth to Most Haunted and, and all those kind of ghost investigation programmes that, that take themselves seriously as opposed to scripted. Yeah, I think you know, the idea of actually, I mean, like stuff like Most Haunted or, you know, or or people using, um, there's another one called Crossing Over, which is on kind of the satellite channels and stuff. Yeah. Um, looking at these haunted spaces and places and of course haunted tourism that's something that's become massive within gothic studies as well the idea of going to different places that have been associated with infamous cases or murders or whatever in different cities uh jack the ripper tour in london that kind of stuff the thing that was interesting about ghost watch was that it was a very normal suburban place it was very bland it wasn't fantastical it was very much any other three bed semi d in enfield london it was a very normal thing and then fronted by Facebook that you would have in your living room on on the television at the weekend. So there was this really interesting um, trust that was built up. Now, it was BBC drama. And as Stephen Volker said to me, you know, it was advertised as drama. It wasn't advertised as factual. Mm. But people suspended that um, that kind of label and, and treated it as factual. And people, I mean, there are t- some stories of people who actually have been really disturbed by it and had kind of, you know, terrible uh, struggles with it after, the, after they watched it. I think watching it today, you wouldn't necessarily find it to be particularly disturbing or upsetting. It might have a couple of really good moments 
moments for you and make you nostalgic for the early 1990s. Um, but I think that it had such a powerful impact upon uh, upon its broadcast in 1992. And so many people of my age who work in either horror studies or gothic studies or are fans of the thing, they always say, I remember watching that. That was a really formative moment in my, my childhood. It terrified me or it made me think about wanting to read ghost stories or watch horror films. So um, it, it's, a, it's a signal moment, I think, for a lot of people in their adolescence watching Ghost Watch. There you go. You cued yourself there without knowing it. <laughs> but also as well, it's interesting that it's interesting that the number nine guys, Reese Shearsmith and that, did yes. paid paid absolute homage to it, didn't they? Last, um, was, I have, it, was it last year? I have to say I'm not caught up entirely on number nine. Unfortunately, they work me too hard in MMU, so okay. I haven't been able to watch all the fun things. But I would totally take your word for it. And if that's the case, I look forward to discovering it then. Oh no, no, you you will. I mean, again, it's it's power. It's power. Gets, I watched it after the fact, and so obviously the power of the the live broadcast sort yeah. of artifice is is sort of lost. But it's it it is really good the way they do it, and that idea of the from the mundane to the escalating ridiculousness of of, of, of supernatural presence. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I was to say, watching Parky trying to act is in itself amusing and <laughs> terrifying. Yeah, Indeed. So, you know. Well, right, look, we're on for your, your fifth of your five. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, we're jumping into the 21st century now with yeah. 2002's 28 Days Later, uh, written by yeah. Alex Garland and directed yes. by Danny Boyle. Do you want to tell us what's, uh, what, why we should be interested to take note of 28 Days Later? Oh, wow. Well, 28 Days Later is arguably the inception of the um, the fast running zombie or certainly the zombie that feels that it's actually got a very um, influential um, element on 21st century culture. The idea being that, you know, essentially the zombie is something that we would consider to be either the Haitian myth, the Haitian um, sort of folklore, or indeed, you know, what Romero did for the zombie in the 60s and the 70s uh, with the Dead, the Dead Trilogy and beyond. But actually, I think Danny Boyle's film really did make zombies quite frightening again. And I think that that was something that certainly struck me when I watched it. I was working in the video store at the time. It was a film that everyone was banging on about that they should see. Uh, I missed it in the cinema release. So uh, when I watched it on video, it was one of the few films that at the end of it, I didn't feel in any way better about the world. I felt actually quite vulnerable. I think it was that terror of biological warfare as well. It was around the time when we started to talk a lot about contagious diseases. It's just before SARS and just before other kind of um, H1N one and all those kind of viruses were the discussion about, you know, a couple of years after it. But that terror of biological warfare, the fact that biological warfare is itself completely indiscriminate, um, you know, uh, and then the what happens with the collapse of society? Well, usually what happens is, is they usually tend to, you know, capture women for particular reasons and uh, which I won't go into or uh, and indeed uh, try and reinstate some sort of usually terrible version of society in the aftermath of the zombie plague. I just found it to be an absolutely stunning piece of cinema. I remember when Danny Boyle shot it, he was talking about shooting it on digital. And I think shooting it in digital gave it a really nice grainy aesthetic. You didn't want it to look too polished or too pretty. It had to look almost kind of shocking to the eye. And I think the digital aesthetic really works for that. And it introduces us to Killian Murphy, fabulous Irish actor mm. uh, from County York. And that was his one of his first... Um, Certainly one of his first international leads. I know he also worked with uh, Neil Jordan and stuff. But uh, uh, I think it's just a really powerful film, but it's really disturbing. Even watching it today and Christopher Eccleston, who, you know, hats off. He is such a great villain when he puts his mind to it. He really, really can be incredible. But he is truly terrifying in that yeah. film. 
Yeah, um, I mean, Alec, really... Alex Garland's sort of vision is... And Garland is a fabulous writer. He really yeah. needs more recognition. He's fantastic, so... Yeah, because yeah. he, he's managed to give us a dystopian nightmare and then lay it onto it, Lord of the Flies. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's the crucial thing about a zombie film. It's not really about, and this is what Walking Dead does and all the rest of it. It's not really the terror isn't that the zombies come. That's just part one of the terrible thing. Mm. The second part is what do we do afterwards? If you're not dead, maybe it's it maybe you're better off being dead in a zombie apocalypse. Because honestly, if you're going to come back, what the hell are you coming back to? Or if you're going to survive it, what are you surviving in the ashes of? I think that's, it, I was going to say it's sort of comment. It's a comment on on on. I think we're, we we all underneath everything fear change, and obviously the end of the world is a big change. And then mm -hmm. whatever the new normal is, I guess the 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 people that are I guess more more. Um, more alpha, well, that, doesn't mean, that doesn't mean male or female, but those, those that want to take charge, want yeah. to control the inability to change, want to create a place where there is no change and you know yeah. what, you can predict what's going to happen. Yes, and you always try and replicate a familiarity or a version or an ideal version of familiarity, whether that is reinstating power or whatever it might be. But it also made the zombies quite terrifying as well. It wasn't the um, the slow perambulating, you know, slow demise of the sort of Romero zombie that we kind of are so used to with Dawn of the Dead, etc. It's to do the, the inevitability of them catching you, I think, is really the horror of those films. What's happening with this is that, you know, actually to be infected is a terrible thing. And this is a very real thing that can happen. The idea that relationships break down, um, you know, and there's real suffering in the film. There's moments of real horror and suffering and the idea that we're only ever one bad decision away of becoming exactly like them. Now, while it was definitely shot before 9-11, it has this really eerie prescience around 9-11 because you have that opening sequence with Killian Murphy walking over um, uh, at London Bridge or one of those bridges in London where you find that, you know, London is completely abandoned. And I think that, that there's another film, Vanilla Sky, and the Tom Cruise vehicle that also had a similar kind of opening shot in, in Times Square, very different type of film, of course. But you have this moment of cities being evacuated and empty. And post 9-11, that had a very sort of frisson, a very sort of very um, uh, echo that was a very uncomfortable. Yeah, because the city, the city has the randomness of lots of us running around like blue ass flies. And it all yes. holds together with just moving, of... like New York, London yeah. in, in New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but it but obviously doesn't take me now. I was, I was, I was here. I was here seven seven, and uh, yeah. and yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't take. It doesn't take much more than that for you to fear whatever being alive is, because yes. Yeah, and the fact it, it, that you're only ever very thin, you are always at the thin end of the wedge in terms of, you know, a decision being made, nothing to do with you, but that, you know, it can change your world irreparably. So I think that that's, that's the kind of terror. It's one of the few films that really, as an adult, really kind of stayed with me in a way where I thought that's actually quite frightening because of its proximity to what's actually going on in the world. Uh, and the zombies are obviously just standing in for all those kind of fears around contagion and the spread of various types of disease or ideology or whatever it might be yeah it's a great film well look uh look circa we've got five films now so let me just run 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 them through for you and then we'll see if what 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 if anything sort of knits them together in your mind so we've got we've got 58's house of dracula horror of dracula mm -hmm. sorry uh we've got 73's wicker man 87's hellraiser 92's ghost watch and 2002's 28 days later i mean Nothing, nothing obvious springs to mind to me, but for you and your your sort of horror fandom and 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 reasons for choosing these, do you think there is anything obvious to you that links them together? 
Hmm. Um, uh, I don't know, really. I suppose for a way they're all formative in very different ways to my taste. Um, I'm usually on the side of the uh, the demons. I'm usually on the side of the vampires, Pinhead, etc. Maybe not necessarily the zombies. I would more feel sorry for the zombies in 28 Days Later. Uh, With Ghostwatch, I do like the idea of the proximity to everyday life and the fact that it's really all horror holds up a mirror to who Mm. we are and what's going on at that time. I don't know, really. Beyond that, I'm 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 a sucker for the Faustian bargain, and I'm always up for sympathetic vampires. So I don't know if that kind of if that kind of knits it together. But um, that's that's kind of my reading of it. I mean, I, I'm quite pleased though with that list because I think that it's very informative of my own particular uh, love of the genre, and in this case, particularly in the British element of the genre. So. And, and you're one of the first guests, to be honest with you, that sort of really straddled the sort of contemporary, what you would call sort of post-war horror. But you've, yes. but you've but you've you've actually kept going forward quite quickly. What I've found is I get people who might come on and have like a the four films in the seventies and then there'll be a two thousand and five. You've actually stretched mm-hmm. us from fifty eight, seventy three, eighty seven, ninety two. So there's like a chronology chrono, chronology to yeah, to, even, to even your every decades. Yeah, 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 which yeah. is really neat, really neat. I su- I suppose as well, I'm a postmodernist for better or worse. That can be good and bad, I suppose. But one of the things about that is that, you know, it always really straddles from sort of the late 50s onwards. Mm. So I think they're all very powerful moments, very important touchstones, I think, in British horror cinema. Mm. Anyway, I think they're all about the evolution of that and the fact that it needs, I think it needs more global recognition as well. So, um, so yeah, I'd like to think that those films are all, have all played a part in that. So. Okay, well, look, you, you came on the show uh, prompted by the fact that you're going to be talking on Thursday the 9th of May at the Horse Hospital for Miskatonic Institute, talking Hellbound Hearts, The Dark Art of Clive Barker. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes for that. Do you want to remind us, what, what, was, the, what was the book that you were talking about at the beginning again? Do you want to remind us of what's coming out? Sure. So um, I have had a book out on Barker. It's called The... Um, Clive Barker, Dark Imaginer, um, published by Manchester University Press that came out in 2017. It recently came out in paperback, so much more affordable in paperback. Uh, And uh, in a week and a half, I think it is, um, Postmodern Vampires, Film, Fiction and Popular Culture will be released by Palgrave Macmillan. uh, And that's um, talking about, you know, vampires who speak, the articulate undead, essentially, uh, basically in American popular culture and American history from 1967 to the uh, election of Donald Trump. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> I like to think. <laughs> Can I ask? I mean, it won't fit into. I don't know if it fits into that book because it's a German film. But where did where did um, We Are the Night fit in with the kind of for you the sort of portrayal of the vampire? Have you seen that? Have you seen that one? I actually haven't. No, no. Now, there's a lot of vampire cinema and I do kind of use exemplary examples of okay. vampires and presidential administrations, but I don't actually know that film. No, I'm sorry. It's 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 it's, it's a one that played at Fright Fest a few years ago and it just oh. it subverted a, a really big trope in the sense of it was a bunch of female, like a gang of feet bunch, a gang of female vampires right. who, who'd ceased biting men because men are bad vampires and they ruin it for them so they can have this happy existence being female vampires oh okay without the influence of men so it's it's a really interesting way of sort of making a female society yeah 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 yeah. and it's done through like the nightlife of berlin so it's kind Hmm. of 
It's really interesting. It's about two ten or two eleven or something like that. It was. It oh, I'm sorry to say I've missed it, but um, I'll, I'll definitely check that out because that sounds like a really interesting kind of uh, revalidating or indeed possibly reinterrogating vampirism as a form of patriarchy. And that's true. I mean, most of the vampire films that I've looked at and vampire novels I've read and for, for this book, they are very much about the male discourse around vampirism. Mm. Most female vampires tend to be reduced to either, you know, spectacularly beautiful lesbians or potentially um uh, which is great, but you know it's kind of limited in terms of usually when it's made by male male directors, or indeed it's uh, sometimes you have the female vampire who wanders through the streets of New York in the 1990s. You have this whole kind of trope running through independent cinema at that time. So that's a really interesting one because it could be around the idea of. Um, I say it in inverted commas, but radical feminism, because I think that's often tarred with a very negative brush. Mm. But uh, the idea of actually reclaiming the patriarchal domain of vampirism for female advancement or power sounds great. No, no, it's, so, it's, it's really funny because it, it's obviously like like all good horror. It's sort of subvert, yeah. once once something subverts your expectation, you're kind of right. I'm in for the ride now, aren't I? Because I don't know where you're going because you've just broke the rules. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. But that's the great thing. The idea that vampires, they do have some entrenched rules, but there's a lot of them that break the rules. And this is exactly what I'm kind of looking at, that each decade or in certain cases, you know, a couple of times a decade, you'll get an advancement within the vampire narrative that revises what we think of as the rules. So the rules are actually not as fixed as we initially think. Um, They're always open to change. And what I was very interested in with the book was that, you know, vampires who tell their own stories. I'm absolutely fascinated with the idea that we get to hear the story of the vampire vampire's life or whatever from the vampire's own mouth from their own subjective point of view because oftentimes certainly in hammer you get this um we're told about the vampire or indeed in Stoker's Dracula, everyone else says, talks about their encounter with, with the vampire, yeah. but we don't get the vampire's point of view. And I'm always one for kind of looking for, well, who, the person who's being spoken about, we want to hear their experience, their subjective point of view. So vampires do that very beautifully from uh, the late 1960s onwards in particular. So we start with Roman Polanski and it goes all the way through to, um, the contemporary moment with Trump and uh, and what we do in the shadows and things like that. So brilliant. Well, yeah. look, we'll put we'll put a link in from uh, if you if you send me a link, I'll put that in the show notes too for that. Absolutely. But uh, yeah. it just gives me to say, uh, Dr. Sirkin line thank you very much for giving us your time on the podcast. And thank you for having me. It was fantastic. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly. There's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? 
And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.